Yeah. All right, guys. We're getting close to the end of the Old Testament. Here's the app. It's right here. You opened up to Ezekiel? Yes. Yeah? All right, open up there. So the author of Ezekiel is who do you think? God. Ezekiel. Right, Jonathan. Uh, so Ezekiel is an interesting book. I, I, at least for me, but I think this is probably pretty true, the most unfamiliar of the major prophets. Do you think that's true? Like between Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's like if I had to pick one that is like, I don't know that one, Ezekiel. It's like Isaiah we start with and like I can pick up some steam and then Jeremiah's next and like, I don't know. And then by the time you get through that, like I think I'm done with the, I, I just lose steam following them. So Ezekiel is a kind of a four-in-one but really good. There's a lot of rich things here. So Ezekiel, um, if you read Ezekiel 1.1, 1, 1, let's just read that first verse, um, and then we'll kind of expound on a little bit. So it says, In the 30th year, um, or my Bible has a little footnote. Some of you guys might just say this. It might say, In my 30th year, which I think is probably accurate. So in my 30th year, maybe in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. So here's why that's significant. If it's his 30th year. It could be that this is like his 30th birthday, um, or at least right around there. And why that's significant is he was, um, like came from a priestly lineage in Jerusalem and was in Jerusalem when the first Babylonian attack came. Do you remember kind of how that functioned? That the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, kind of fought, took some of the best people away, and then left them alone for a while, then came back and conquered them once Jerusalem was kind of too much of a pest. So Ezekiel was probably in that first wave, was in that first wave of exiles taken to Babylon, but was from priestly lineage. The reason it's significant that he's maybe 30 or just turning 30 is because that's the age you would hit. Numbers talks about this. That's the age you hit when you're allowed to like fully do the priestly duties. So he could do some stuff before that, but once he's 30 is when he would be like, now you're really a priest. Like you can do the actual job. And so he's sitting by some random river in exile in Babylon while he knows the rest of the world is kind of functioning a little bit without him and he's living in Babylon miserable. Just hit the age when it's like, man, everything I dreamed about would be happening today or right around here. Everything I wanted to do would be today. My service to the temple would start today. And I'm sitting by this random river in Babylon, miserable. Does that make sense? So it's a pretty rich opening moment if you kind of know what you're reading for. Um, so that's Ezekiel, that's where he sits. But he says, in that year, at that time, at that place, he saw visions of God. So even there, even in that season, even in his emotional depth, probably, we're reading between the lines a little bit, but I think it's a safe guess, he saw visions of God. So that's pretty cool to know, like, the character we're looking at and the character that God's going to speak through here. So when this happened during the Babylonian exile, you can read about it in those places. We've talked a lot about the Babylonian exile. When did that begin? 586. Yeah. And when did it end? 70 years later. Yeah. Which would be what? 560. Yeah. Which is when the temple was completed. You remember that kind of math? So some of them get to go back before then, but the temple is completed and dedicated 70 years after. So they would have looked at Jeremiah's prophecy that said it's going to be 70 years and said, see exactly from when it was conquered and when we dedicated the temple, that's when it happened. And they would have been pretty excited about that. So Ezekiel happens during that time period. So here's kind of some themes of big picture stuff from Ezekiel. First of all, um, God's presence and voice during the exile. God's presence and voice during the exile. Um, we'll look at a couple instances of this um, throughout that are 
important. Um, let me see if I want to do that now or later. Um, let's do that now. I think we'll be okay if we do that now. Um, so look at, um, where is it? We're in chapter 1. Let's just keep going. So we're in verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. It says, On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side of each had a face of a lion, and on the left of the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. So, like, impossible, crazy, weird, right? What does this sound like so far that you've seen in Scripture? What? An angel, but like where else in scripture does this sound like? Revelation has a lot of this imagery. Isaiah has some of the, a lot of these prophetic books have a lot of this stuff. Uh, verse 11, such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on either side, and two wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. So like I'm, I'm thinking probably you got a wheel like this and then another wheel. Like Does that make sense? It's like just a weird... Movement. It could move any direction, kind of feel. Um, as they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. The rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So he's going going like that. Let me kind of explain, because this is that, like, I don't know why he's talking about this. This is why this matters. Um, what he's describing, basically, like I said, is very similar to Revelation imagery, very similar to Isaiah 6 imagery. You remember what happens in Isaiah 6? Probably. Yeah, it's when Isaiah is kind of transported in his vision to the throne room of God, and he's surrounded by angels and burning fire and all that stuff. So all these images are like, I'm seeing angelic beings and i'm seeing all the signs of the presence of god burning fire lightning flashes of lightning that's all very the presence of god imagery so what ezekiel is seeing in babylon on the shore of the kadar river in his morning is this weird like chariot throne and you notice how a couple different times it's like these creatures are moving wherever the spirit moves and when the spirit moves they move when the spirit moves the wheels move um, so this is kind of also linking back to Exodus, right? There's a cloud of fire, and when it moves, we move. Where it goes, we go, and that is God's presence leading us. So what Ezekiel's seeing is, here in Babylon, by the river, in my morning, everything's miserable, the world is falling apart. The presence of God came, and is still moving, 
And it's, here's what, what's crazy about this. It's weird because I'm reading like, why are there wheels and why are creatures carrying it? And it's going up and down and moving all over the place. Why is that significant? Because he's not in Jerusalem. He moved. And a bunch of the people moved. And a bunch more people are about to be moved. But God's presence can move too. In fact, it can move any direction at any time, quickly. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Weird imagery to get through, but that's, that's the point. Is he saying, I saw God's presence here in a foreign land, and it's portable. Which is strange, but for an exile who's mourning everything he lost in the temple, the fact that God's presence is portable and quickly movable is huge. Huge. So a couple different times in Ezekiel, we're going to see this kind of image um, come back. Let's flip to um, chapter 10 real quick. So that's kind of the big beginning. He's going to have kind of a call story too, you know, where God's like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to preach and nobody's going to listen. Sounds a lot like Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's just kind of the deal. Um, in chapter 10, he has had this vision of um, the temple. And so remember, he's not in Jerusalem. So he's having a vision and God kind of saying, again, it's like Revelation in the sense that he's like, let me show you what's really happening there. So he sees a vision of the temple, but it's not just like, He's watching TV, like closed circuit TV of what's happening. It's like, let me pull back the veil and show you what's really happening spiritually. And there's like people worshiping idols in the temple courts. And there's like these two sisters who are prostitutes, basically. And he's like, that's Israel and Judah. So it's apocalyptic in the sense that it's like kind of symbolic. You know, it's not really happening, but he's having a vision of what's happening in the temple. Does that make sense? So then look at um, chapter t- uh, 10. Let me see where I want to pick up because I don't want to read forever. Um, let's start at chapter 1 we'll see how it goes or at verse 1 sorry chapter 10 verse 1 I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of sapphire above the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim so this is the movable throne right that's above the temple that he's seeing in his vision the Lord said to the man clothed in linen go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city And as I watched, he went in. So he's pulling out fire from God's altar and scattering it over the city. What does that mean? Think about that. Judgment. Judgment. Yeah, it's like this is God's presence here. God's presence is watching everything that's happening evil in the temple. Grab some of that fire. Throw it on everybody. Yeah, Jonathan? Could that kind of, this like symbolism be related to like in Isaiah 6? Like the burning coal like looks. Yeah, fire is purifying. Yeah. It's the same kind of idea, but it's going to have a different purpose. Fire is destruction, but it's also purifying mm-hmm. by its destruction, right? So in Isaiah, when God is like, here's a coal, let me clean your lips so you're ready to speak. This is like, grab the coals and fling them, so we're going to purify all this. That's going to mean it hurts, it's going to mean burning, but God's point, like we talked about through all the exile and all the prophet stuff, is not, I hate you, you're punished. It's you've been unfaithful, I want to call you back to me. This is going to hurt, but it's discipline that leads to improvement, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, it's the same purifying kind of fire. Um, let's see. Now the cherubim, verse 3, were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. This is what happened like when Solomon built the temple, right? You remember that? Solomon builds it, and it's filled with this cloud of the presence of God indwelling that place. Um, Verse 5, the sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. 
When the Lord commanded the man in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, the man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took up some of it, put it into the hands of the man in linen, who took it and went out. Under the wings of the cherubim could be seen what looked like the hands of a man. Uh, let me skip down a little bit. Um, let's just skip to verse 18. It's gonna, that paragraph we just read is going to repeat like two more times. The same kind of thing. He's just moving throughout the temple. So it's basically like God's presence is here seeing all of this happen. But then in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple, stopped above the cherubim. While I watched the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground, and as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. These were the living creatures I'd seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar River, and I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and four wings, and under their wings was what looked like the hands of a man. Their faces had the same appearance as those I had seen by the Kabar River. Each one went straight ahead. So this is, you know, Ezekiel at his call had this vision of like, God's presence is here, and this is what it looks like. Now he's having a vision of the temple. Oh, God's presence is there. That's beautiful. But I'm seeing all these terrible things, and his presence keeps moving from thing to thing, from thing to thing, being displeased. And then finally it's like they got up. They're now at the threshold of the temple. Then they just went straight ahead. So this presence of God, the vision is saying, has left the temple. It's not good. He's not pleased with what's happening there. So God is not going to keep it sustained, which is what Jeremiah preached against, right? Just because it's the temple doesn't mean I'm going to save it. I'm going to save my people. Um, So then later, um, let's turn to chapter... uh, Where'd it go? Sorry, guys. 43. So chapter 43, this is close to the end. We'll go over an outline so you can see how this fits together, but I want you to see this thread because this is kind of the major thing from this theme, God's presence of voice during the exile. This is how it works. So this is now towards the end of the book of Ezekiel. In the middle of Ezekiel, the final fall of Jerusalem happens, so we're post that, like the full exile has taken place. Ezekiel's still in the land of Babylon. More people are joining him in the land of Babylon. Everything's terrible, but like all the other prophets, he gets this glimmer of hope of like, don't let go. Because God's fire is purifying. It's not just disciplinary. He's going to bring about something new. So this is what it'll be like. And then in chapter 43 it says, Then the man, he's kind of had this um, like this vision of a man who's being his guide in these visions. It's basically like an angel or, or something showing Ezekiel around. And then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. That's the gate he left from in chapter 10. Remember that? He stops at the threshold of the gate, the east gate. Now he comes in from the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So that now, like Ezekiel's whole vision started with God's presence is in Babylon. It was in Jerusalem, but it left. Somehow, sometime, God's going to reestablish his people and his presence, and it will fill that place. So the difficulty with this then becomes like, so when they rebuild the temple, this happens. To some extent, this is like when Ezra rebuilds the temple. That's why that was such the hope, right? When the temple is rebuilt, that's when exile ends. But did that happen? Do you remember when we studied in Ezra and Nehemiah, when they rebuilt the temple, what happened? And dedicated it? God's presence wasn't there. Right. It was great. They had a worship service, 
But a lot of the older people were like, no, this isn't as good as it used to be. So what they were hoping for didn't actually happen, right? Does that make sense? So then that's what creates all the stuff we've been talking about with Simply Jesus and everything else is like, we rebuilt the temple and it was good, but it wasn't everything we hoped it would be. So when God finally fixes everything, that's what's going to happen. So then you get the disciples in Matthew 24 saying, Jesus, look at the temple. Isn't it amazing? It's going to be even better. And Jesus is like, I'm going to destroy it. And that's why it throws them off so much. So like, no, our whole hope was rebuild the temple, God's presence build it, and that's when everything's right and Israel's reestablished. But Jesus is saying, that's not what I meant. I meant my presence is going to be in my temple. But what has Jesus said the temple is? Uh, his people, right? Because what Ezekiel is saying is God's presence is portable. It can move any direction, any time, when God wants to and where his spirit fills. Does that make sense? So all those things fit together. Of course, in hindsight, it's easier to see. But those are the ingredients that create the Jewish people at the time of Jesus not understanding why he would cleanse the temple and throw over tables, not understanding why he would say, this place is going to be destroyed and he's not too broken up about it. That just doesn't work for them. It's either the temple is restored and that's Messiah, or the temple is destroyed and the world ends. Those are the only two options. And Jesus is like, how about the physical temple gets destroyed and I'll build a new one that's better? How about that? There's a third option, (laughs) you know? But that's what Jesus is about. Now here, um, flip over to Ezekiel 48, and this is the best. So he's continued on from that temple vision, and he talks about the city, and it's, and it's very much like Revelation. I measured it, and it was a million cubits this way and that way and all that stuff. It's like, is it literal? Is it figurative? I think it's figurative because the whole thing has been, this is all destroyed. So we're looking forward to God building a new place where he comes to dwell. Where is that? With his people wherever they are, right? So that's Ezekiel, the point of Ezekiel's vision. He's been doing all that since chapter 43 we just read. Let's pick up in verse 30. These will be the exits of the city. So again, detailed stuff. Beginning on the north side, which is 4,500 cubits long, the gates of the city will be named after the tribes of Israel. Three gates on the north side will be the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Joseph, Benjamin, and Dan. On the south side, which measures 4,500 cubits, will be three gates, the gate of Simeon, Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is 4,500 cubits long, will be three gates, the gate of Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. The distance all around will be 18,000 cubits, and this is the best part. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. And that's where the book ends. How did the book begin? I'm in Babylon, alone, missing everything I thought I was going to have, sitting by this river. But the presence of God came. And then the book kind of spaced throughout is the presence of God isn't at the temple. The presence of God meets me here. The presence of God will be in the new temple that God establishes. And the name, the thing that the city is known for, it's not going to be, and then Jerusalem will be established as the great place and everybody knows. The name of the city is, the Lord is there. That's how this ends. That's Ezekiel's hope for this is, the goal isn't, even though there's, of course, it's like, we'll rebuild the temple, we'll be back in the city. There's those glimmers of hope, and that happens. The ultimate hope is, we just want to be where his presence is. So what city do I want to live in? You could call it whatever you want, as long as he's there. And you remember at the end of Revelation, when it says um, that there's like a, there's a temple in a city. Do you remember this stuff? It's like Revelation 21 and 22. I mean, it says there's a river of life flowing from the throne through the city, which Ezekiel talks about if you kept reading in chapter 43. 
Uh, it talks about um, the light that's going to be there. It talks about the measurements and the gates and all that stuff. And one of the things it says is, we won't even need a light there because the Lamb will be its light. God will be so present there. You don't even need lights because the name of that place, I, that's, not, that's not what John said, but I think this is what he's thinking about. The name of that place is the Lord is there. So where will it be? When will it be? Does it matter? The Lord is there. That's the point. And that's what John holds on to. I think probably as a Jewish person who's now Christian, experiencing persecution, kind of having lived through probably the like, how is this fulfillment going to happen? We have these prophetic visions. They've kind of been fulfilled. They've kind of not. How do we deal with that? Now I believe in Jesus and that changes everything. And I'm reinterpreting scripture in light of this revealed truth I have in Christ. And now this hope that we thought was fulfilled, this incredible vision that I'm living in, this incredible truth of God's Messiah is wonderful and awesome and we're being systematically persecuted and it's miserable. How do I make sense of this? And John, God gives John in Revelation a lot of the same language to say, there will be a temple, there will be my presence, you'll see, like someday I'll fulfill it and I'll be there. My promise is that I'll be with you. Not when, not where, I'll be with you. Does that make sense? And John's like holding on to that hope still. Is that clicking? Okay, we just covered a whole bunch of ground. So let's go back to the Ezekiel page. <laughs> and back to the beginning. I think it was helpful to, to go through that now so you can kind of get your bearings in Ezekiel. Those are like the big kind of category movements, like big picture outline stuff he wants to cover. Um, but let's go back through in a little bit more detail. So your second bullet point. Um, God's messenger lives out God's message. God's messenger lives out God's message. This is similar to Jeremiah. You remember we talked about all those crazy things Jeremiah did. Ezekiel does them too. Um, but Ezekiel's, I think there's a little, a little bit fewer of them. And they all happen in one little spot. So chapters 4 through 5 is when Ezekiel does his crazy things. Um, so he does the same kind of thing as Jeremiah. But Jeremiah's are like span his whole lifetime. And there's a few more of them. But Ezekiel does that as well. And again, I would just say for us as ministry leaders... Be ready and willing for when God calls, when God speaks, when God acts, when God moves you, that sometimes you just got to do something too. It's not only about teaching and speaking. Sometimes you got to live out the things you're talking about. Um, third, personal accountability for sin. Personal accountability for sin. We talked about this in last week too because Jeremiah talks about this. Um, but that section in chapter 18 is in the, it's in kind of that like, someday here's what's going to change. And they quote that same proverb, like, um, people will eat grapes and their sons eat sour grapes or something. You remember that? It's in chapter 18 of Ezekiel, if you read it. And the point that Ezekiel makes is, like, um, you're not just going to be able to say, my dad and my grandpa were bad people, so now I'm being punished for for their sin. It's like, no, you're going to be punished for your own sin. But here's the point he's making, and this is why it's important to see this in context. It would be easy for um, an Israelite at this time who's hearing all these hard prophecies or experiencing the Babylonian conquest to say, well, I'm not that bad. What, my grandpa was so terrible, and so now God's punishing us? That's not fair. I didn't do it. And I think what Ezekiel is saying is, for one, a, a couple layers. For one, he's saying, yes, there are long-term consequences for things that have been going on a long time. Eventually, the, the truth of God will be, and it's really, like we talked about last week, it's really always been that way. There's just long-term consequences for sin. But God's, God will hold you accountable for what you do, will not punish you directly for the sin of your grandpa or grandma or whatever. 
that we talked about that some last week, right? That's just kind of how God works. You sin, you're guilty of it. You don't sin, you're not guilty of it. That's how it works. The bigger thing, though, in context historically that I think God's speaking to and Ezekiel's speaking to is less about, well, if I sin, do I get punished? And if they sin, do I get punished for that? And that doesn't seem fair. The bigger thing he's speaking to, I think, is like, hey, let me tell you how God works. If you are sin or sinful and worthy of discipline, God will discipline you. So and I'm reading between the lines historically and thinking it would be easy for people to say, our ancestors were so terrible and now we have to live through this Babylonian exile because they were bad. And I think Ezekiel's like, well, yeah, but you are too. Like God holds people accountable for their sin. And you've had a zillion opportunities to repent. And if you would repent, you'd be fine. But you haven't, so don't blame it on them. It's you. Does that, does that make sense? I think that's the, probably the primary historical driver for him. Is like, don't pass this off on other people. Your guilt, take accountability for your fault. Don't pass it off elsewhere. Um, but that's Ezekiel 18. Is that making sense? Okay. Next, um, Ezekiel sees before, during, and after the exile. Ezekiel sees before, during, and after the exile. This is very similar to Jeremiah. In that sense, the timeline is similar to Jeremiah, except Jeremiah lives in Jerusalem while all that stuff's happening. Ezekiel lives in Babylon while all that stuff's happening. But they both are like speaking into, there's change that's possible here. Jeremiah more before than Ezekiel, but both of them a little bit like, this is what's about to happen. Now it's happened. How do we respond? Now let me paint a picture of hope if you can hang on for the future. And they both do all that. Does that make sense about Ezekiel? All right, let's look through the outline flow of it a little bit. We saw the major, at least like theologically significant parts of that we walk through with God's presence. But um, Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 is the call of Ezekiel. And so we read that beginning part when he's sitting by the river. Um, but you can read more of his story of being called. It's similar to Isaiah's and Jeremiah's. I want you, you're going to do amazing things, but everybody's going to hate you. Ready? It's that kind of thing. So the call of Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 4 through 24, I just call the preaching of Ezekiel. Um, so that's mostly when he's like speaking into that current situation. He's got that temple vision, and he's kind of prophesying against the people still living in Jerusalem, wishing they would repent. Uh, I told you already, chapters 4 through 5 are what's called sometimes the sign acts. So like the things he acts out when God says. Like one of the things God says is basically to, he acts like the scapegoat of Israel, basically like ties himself up and like goes outside the city. And he's like, this is what you should do with your sin. Like it's weird stuff, but that's what he has to do. Um, chapters 8 through 11, we looked at chapter 10, which is right in the middle of that, but that's Ezekiel's first temple vision when he's kind of transported back to see what's happening at the temple before Babylon conquers it that he prophesies against. And then chapters 12 through 24 is Ezekiel's prophecies against Israel and symbols of judgment. Um, so he, uh, that's when he is again he's like reacting to what he saw with the temple so he sees that stuff in the temple and it's bad and then he goes off on a long time of here's what's terrible about all of that stuff and how he should change does that make sense um your next one there i think i changed your sheet for mine so is the next one there chapters 25 through 32 um prophecies against nations is that what it says um so yeah, chapters 25 to 32 is the same kind of thing, except instead of saying against Israel, it, it's similar to Jeremiah. Do you remember how Jeremiah had that section of like, now we're talking about Egypt, and now we're talking about Babylon. Ezekiel does the same thing, where all of a sudden he's talking about random other countries. Um, so it's like, prophesy against Israel, and then it balances out a little bit with like, but they're not the only evil ones. Like, just because God's going to work through Babylon to judge you doesn't mean he doesn't see their evil. He's aware of it too. Let God work out his thing sovereignly. Um, so that's through chapter 32. 
Uh, Ezekiel 33 is the fall of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel is in Babylon, you know, and um, somebody comes to Babylon from Jerusalem saying the city just fell. And that's what we read about like in 2 Kings 25 or um, in Jeremiah when it actually happens, like Nebuchadnezzar conquers the city. So Ezekiel is informed about it in Babylon. It's just an interesting perspective that he gets to live out. That happens in chapter 33. So that just kind of helps you get your time bearings a little bit. All the stuff leading up to that is before, and then everything after chapter 33 is after the fall. Uh, Chapters 34 through 39, for your outline, I just called the hope of Israel. So that's when he shifts that gear for like, yes, it's awful. Don't give up. There's still a chance here. The hope of Israel. Um, so in chapter 34, are you, are you flipping there a little bit? Get to chapter 34 and let's look through a couple of these headings. Because this section is the stuff that's probably more well known in Ezekiel. It'd be good to be aware of where it is and kind of what he's talking about. So chapter 34, I just call on your sheet a new David. He talks about, um, my heading says shepherds and sheep. You see that? So he's going to talk about like there's going to be a shepherd for my people. We talked about that imagery in Jeremiah, you remember? That's always kind of been one of the, like, a good king will be a good shepherd in the Israelite mind. So then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good one, you know. Um, They're looking forward to that in chapter 34, like somebody who's going to do what David um, was supposed to do. Um, Chapter 35 is one of those random prophecies. You see that prophecy against Edom, um, which is like a neighboring nation to Israel. It's really, really close by. Um, chapter 36, my heading says a prophecy to the mountains of Israel. So this is him speaking to Israel again. It's kind of a mix of like, be careful and hope. But look at um, verse 24, chapter 36, verse 24. This is a great little section to know. Um, he says, so again, he's talking to Israel, kind of that like, yes, things are bad, but there's a glimmer of hope. Hold on. Uh, verse 24, it says, for I'll take you out of the nations. It's so like, yes, you're in exile, but it's not forever. I'll bring you out. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I give your forefathers. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And we can keep on going, but let me point out a couple things from that. Um, Jeremiah has a lot of that kind of language. Do you remember Jeremiah's new covenant thing? I'll make a new covenant with my people. Your law will be on my hearts. You won't have to tell people to obey. They're just going to do it. Here Ezekiel says, I'm going to give you a new heart, and you're going to be moved to know my word and to obey. It's the same kind of thing. And it's interesting that their hope isn't just God's going to fix all our problems. Their hope even now is that, like, we are too weak to do this well. And unless God gives you a new heart, you're going to fail again. That's always been the problem. It's not, it's not like the New Testament writers come along and like, you know, this isn't working. It's like it's been the problem the whole time that they need to be changed. And God all along is saying, if you'll come to me, I'll change you. It's available to you. Let me change your heart. Let me soften it. Um, so that's Ezekiel 36. Um, some other language in there. I wanted to see how much he's like, I'll put my spirit in you. Back in the Old Testament, he's saying that. My spirit is available to you to work in you. Now, the way it happens after Christ kind of breaks the curse and atones for sin and all that stuff, the doors are thrown open to how available that is. But all along, God is saying, someday I'm going to give this to you. When you have this, it'll change you. The thing that's missing from your life is my spirit that changes your heart. That's always been God's thing. You know, it's not random or brand new in the New Testament. Um, 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 um. What else do I want to say? 
I think that's it for that one. That's a great little section that I call, I'll give you a new heart and take out your heart of stone. That's a good prayer to just hold on to sometimes. Sometimes I think I need that. God, I feel like my heart's just getting hard. Um, maybe not quite like Pharaoh level, but you know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, man, it's just like, till up the soil. I need a new heart that beats its flesh, you know? Um, chapter 37 is another famous, um, relatively famous Ezekiel passage, as famous as Ezekiel gets. This is probably it. Um, so some of you guys know this story. I think, did we talk about this at SFR? Did somebody talk about it at SFR? We talked about it at some point. Maybe not. We talked about it like a couple months ago. Okay. In class. That, there you go. So what Ezekiel sees is the vision he sees, and he's taken to this field, and there's just full of dry bones. And he makes a point that like they are very dry. So it's not just like, these weren't just freshly dead. They've been like really, really dead for a long time. And then they just slowly start coming together. And then like tendons form and then skin forms and blood starts flowing and they come alive and God when this when the wind blows on them and that's so that's God saying like I will fill you and make you alive you were dead I can make you alive again you think it's all over I can just blow my wind on you and bring you back to life um, which is beautiful for that time beautiful imagery for now so think about then getting moved to Acts when you've got a crowd of thousands of people who are cut to the heart and like we just killed the one we thought that, that we didn't realize was here to do all these things and fulfill all these promises. They're cut to the heart. They're spiritually dead. And then there's a sound like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, right? Fills the room where they're sitting. There are tongues of fire. They preach the message. And 3,000 are added to their number that day who are sprinkled with water, chapter 36. Their heart is changed when the Spirit fills them and they come alive in a new kind of way. It's just cool all that comes together when the spirit moves. Um, so that's Ezekiel's imagery. Chapter 36 and 37 in Ezekiel are really good. Uh, chapter 38 and 39 in Ezekiel are also really good, but for different reasons. So you're heading in chapter 38. Mine says a prophecy against Gog. Do you have something like that? Or Gog and Magog. So this is a section that's often used if you ever look at end time stuff or see Revelation stuff. A lot of times this will come up, and I'm always like, I don't, what is that from? What is it? It's from here. Um, and Revelation kind of hints at it, but it's like Revelation always draws from the Old Testament, like we've already talked about. They use tons of biblical imagery because they're holding on to the same hope. Um, but a lot of people will look at this Gog and Magog thing and either say this, this is like actually really literally going to happen with somebody of this name from some place and figure out where is Magog so we can figure out where they come from. And that's how we'll know the bad person that we have to stop. Or there's going to be some ruler that raises up. Even if they're not named Gog, it's not named, named Magog, there's going to be some ruler. How do we find him? The evil ruler we have to destroy. And I think Ezekiel would say, what are you doing? Like, I don't, I don't think Ezekiel's describing, like, let me give you the perfect crystal clear. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Like, how clear have any of these biblical prophecies been to the detail about names and exact places yet? They don't function that way, do they? They definitely look forward. They definitely predict but it's more like this is what it's going to be like that you'll get to experience in poetic terms. This is no different. I think people get to this one sometimes and they're like, oh, this is absolutely literal. Like there are literal things about it. Like there is literally an enemy that God will destroy, but there always is, you know? Um, so I would just say people will use this language or grab onto this stuff and, and be like, Man, maybe, maybe, you know, you got to watch out because Gog is going to raise up and we got to keep our eyes out. Like, I think, I don't know, maybe. And if they do, God will defeat them like he always has. The point that Ezekiel makes, if you read it, it's kind of a crazy combination of things like the chariot language when we read it in chapter one, 
where it just kind of keeps building on itself and you're like, so there's two wheels interlocking. Like I saw all your guys' faces when I read that and it's like, what, how does that work? And it's like, you can kind of describe it and make sense of it, but even then it wouldn't really work, right? Because then it says the chariot moves, but the wheels don't move. Then why do you have wheels? Like we're not describing <laughs> stuff like that. So when he describes this Gog and Magog thing, if you read it in chapter 38, you're like, this is like crazy, like over the top beyond what, what he's not describing a warrior. He's describing an amalgamation of all the evil foreign warriors that eventually will meet their fate. Does that make sense? Um, but this is just one of those chapters. I'm camping out on this. I, I don't know how much you guys care, but I'm camping out on this because this is one of those places. People in your ministries and your worlds will know those words and might care about it and at the most random times will come up to you really curious about how Gog and Magog work. And it can be like, well, I think Ezekiel was saying there are always evil rulers opposed to the way of God. And there's always a God who's sovereign over it. And he's won every time. So will there be another one? Yeah. Will there be several? Maybe. Will God win? Yes. That's the point of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Because we're talking about the God who can make an army out of dry bones. So what king could he be afraid of? You know, Is he literally going to take dry bones and make them alive? I don't think he could. I don't think so. That doesn't even happen here. It's a vision. So I think chapters 38 and 39 are the same kind of thing. Does that make sense? Um, okay, chapter 40 through 48 um, is the vision of the temple and the land. We've talked about that in general a little bit, but that starts in chapter 40 and goes through the whole um, rest of it. So a lot of that is detail stuff where it's like really describing, here's the gates in the temple, and if you really knew your temple geography and we really did that stuff like in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, then you'd be like, oh yeah, he's describing where the gates are in the, in the temple. It's just like a beautiful version of it when God restores it all. So like we saw in Jesus, is the point that there will be a temple in Jerusalem and that's how we'll know everything is okay? Or is the point that God's presence is going to come dwell with people who are prepared to receive him? That's the point, right? Um, so the temple stuff for Ezekiel and his mind and his readers is like, this is what it has looked like in the past. So imagine getting that right again. That'll be the best. Um, and God's point is like, yeah, we can do that and we will to an extent. But the point is, the Lord is there. The Lord is where? The Lord is where his people are, where his spirit is, where he chooses to dwell. And he said, my spirit will fill you, replace your hearts, raise up an army out of nothing. That's where I'll be. So that's what we're after. Um, that's kind of how Ezekiel moves. Is that making sense? Okay. Daniel? So I missed it. You just said something about this. I kind of missed it. You were saying he's he is kind of talking about Jerusalem with the gates and everything like he's, that. He is describing it. I mean, like he describes it in Jerusalem because that's where the gates were and what the temple was like. Yeah. So he's painting that picture because that's what he has to draw on. Um, I just think we get into a trap when it's like Ezekiel was describing places in Jerusalem. So we have to make sure we keep Jerusalem now safe and built up so that God can come back because he can't come back until that temple's rebuilt. And I think Ezekiel would say, no, God lives in a moving chariot that's full of fire. He'll go wherever he wants. Yeah. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah. I think it's along the exact same lines. But just like, how do we, I don't know, where do you balance the tension of, like, God speaking to Israel yeah. and all Christians, anybody who has the spirit of Christ living in them as this new, create, this new Israel? Um, 
like, would you tend to lean more on like a, it's more of like a metaphor, like all this stuff is like, no, 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 we're not supposed to like, I don't know, view Israel, the like physical nation in as high regard as they, as the scriptures like tend to, um, or I, I mean, I know some people who would be all like, nope, if America doesn't side with Israel in any war ever, like God's, God's wrath is going to punish America, like stuff like yeah. that. Uh, and obviously I don't, like that's extreme. But yeah, I got you. Where would you? A lot of people feel that way. Yeah, I, I think what I would say is, we use the phrase "chosen people," is is part of what makes it really, really sticky. And when we say Israel is God's chosen people, it's like, well, okay, what do you mean by chosen people, and what do you mean by Israel? Both of those things matter. So, um, you have to go back to Abraham, right? Where God said God calls Abraham out of nothing. He chose. He's got to work through somebody. He chose one person so that all nations could be blessed. That was the intention from the get-go. That only became Israel once Abraham's grandson was renamed Israel. But the point was still, be blessed so all nations could be blessed. So they were the chosen nation, not in the sense that they are better than anybody, but in the sense that God had to start working somewhere, and he chose to start there. So I think the chosen people language gets confusing, because you hear that like, well, I was... I am chosen, or they're, they're the chosen people. God would never change that. They're chosen. Like, he chose to start his work there so that all nations could be blessed. That was the choice. Does that make sense? So scripture continues to use that language, but I think it's, it comes from that context. I chose you to start here so that you could be my priest. What does a priest do? Mediates the presence of God to everyone else. That's always been the goal. Um, so was Israel God's chosen people? Yes. For what purpose? so that all would be blessed. So now are we chosen by God to be his people? Yes. Does that mean we're better or great? Or does that mean God is working through us to bless? That's what chosen means, I think, in God's language. Um, and then Paul talks a lot about that, especially Romans like 9 through 11. He talks a lot about the nature of Israel and what that means because he would say, like, well, God chose to work through them and God's not going to just like go back on what he promised. So he's going to keep that promise. But then the conclusion that Paul talks himself, he doesn't talk himself into it, but he talks out his train of thought in that section of scripture. And one of the statements he says is not all Israel is Israel. So like, did God choose Israel to work through? Yes. Is Israel God's chosen people? Yes. And Paul would say, right, but not all ethnic Israel is spiritual Israel, I think is what Paul means. So just because you have that heritage doesn't mean you're better or more important or more saved. It means you had a, an earlier opportunity, maybe, to hear the truth of God, to hear the call of God, and to act on it. But God chose to work through people who would hear him so that they could distribute his blessing. Mm-hmm. So who are the people that are chosen by God to distribute his blessing? The people who come to him through Christ. So that's what I would say, which is a long-winded way to get there. I think there's shorter ways to say it, but that's what I would say. Which some people get real worked up about. And you may hear the term replacement theology. That's, that's a term sometimes given to at least a version of what I just told you. Where it's like the church replaces Israel is the idea. And I would, if somebody asked me, like, do you believe in replacement theology? I think I would say, no, it's not that, it's not that simple. It's more nuanced than that. It's not just like, there was Israel, now there's a church, we replaced them, they're bad. It's like, no, 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 God has always done through Israel what he wanted to do. 
And he's always said, the people who belong to Israel are the people who are faithful to me and repentant and contrite in heart and who honor the oppressed and seek the good of the poor and, you know, humble in heart. That's always been what he meant. So it's not that he did something new that replaces it. It's that he's, he's, put, he's revealed himself in a different way. He's opened a different door to it. The door is not ethnicity. The door is Christ. That's what I would say around all that. So would you say, like, a good rule of thumb, obviously it's nuanced depending on, like, this, the text or whatever, but a good rule of thumb would be sort of along Romans 9 through 11 to take any sort of instance of Scripture talking about Israel, to take it more in the sense of spiritual Israel than physical territorial Israel? I, I think so because, um, like, I bet Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or whoever, when, when Ezekiel is writing about the temple and the city, he's picturing Jerusalem and Israel. And I think he probably thought that's probably how it will go because that's how it's been in the past. But everything else he says points to, but all nations will come and people from all over will be able to join. Like all the prophets' language is that way. So I think they're speaking to what they know and saying what I saw was the temple restored. <coughs> But they always they describe it bigger. They describe it with more people. So they're describing the reality that Christ made possible in the language and the terms that they had available. Does that make sense? So I think that so I think the short answer to your question would be yes, when Ezekiel says there's going to be a new temple where the presence of God comes. I think he's saying what we want is a place for the presence to be. And what I saw was like the best possible version of what I know. Will it be exactly that, or will it be a place where God's presence can be? I think that's how I would see it. Could it be? Could God set up His presence there when He returns? Yeah, sure, maybe. But I don't, I don't know. Jackson, what's the nuance? Nuance is basically like complexity. So it's like um, I don't know an example, but it's like I could say something to you that on the surface just seems one way, but it's like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, it's kind of like an iceberg. Yeah, yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. Okay? Daniel, real quick? Let's do it. <laughs> the author is Daniel. Happened during the Babylonian exile. Later on in the Babylonian exile, then Jeremiah or Ezekiel, a little further down the road. Uh, so Daniel, during the Babylonian exile. A couple themes from Daniel. One, nations will always rise and fall. So we talked about even with the Gog and Magog thing, right? That's so much of the prophetic thing. That's so much of revelation. It's like there's always going to be this turmoil of nations coming and going and claiming power and thinking they're important and everybody being scared. There will be another one. And it's kind of like sad and discouraging in some ways. Like, don't worry. I know this seems like a beast that's going to destroy you. There will be another one. I'm like, well, that's not exciting, except to say that this one won't last forever, you know. But the one that lasts forever is the Ancient of Days who sits on the throne and has no end. That will last forever. So nations will always rise and fall. Secondly, you can live faithfully as a foreigner. You can live faithfully as a foreigner. Daniel's a great example because it gives us a little bit more of his, like, I lived in the palace because I was kind of favored but I was faithful. Um, so Ezekiel, you know, goes into exile, but he's kind of an outcast from the get-go because he's a prophet and is just like not part of the system. Daniel becomes a li- kind of lives out Jeremiah twenty-nine. 
know, it's like, go make a home, have a family, settle in. This is where you live. But be faithful to me because I have plans for you. Daniel lives that out. Daniel's kind of the example of Jeremiah 29, which I know we talked about Jeremiah 29, but think about Daniel's life. Kind of really good, kind of really awful. Thrown in a lion's den at one point, you know, not great. God has plans for him to prosper and not to harm him, which might include a lion's den. Still, God has plans for him to prosper and not to harm him. But Daniel lives that out pretty well, very well. Um, So outline of Daniel, two big sections here. The first one is stories about Daniel. So chapters 1 through 6 is kind of the stuff that happens to him um, or around him. So chapter 1, you read about him getting to to Babylon, him and his friends. They're taken there. Um, Chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and is kind of humbled eventually. There's a couple movements of that, which is interesting. I know we talk about Nebuchadnezzar a little bit here, some of those foreign kings. It's an interesting figure because sometimes he's really, really evil and awful. Sometimes it's like, how did he become humble and godly, you know? Um, chapter 3 is the fiery furnace um, so that's when Nebuchadnezzar yeah what's up okay so that's when Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of himself and says you have to bow down whenever the music plays but Daniel's friends don't bow down so they get thrown in the fiery furnace um, I was wondering this when I read the whole book uh-huh. um, but when their names change to the Babylonian names why That's a good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know. Now I'm more confused that Daniel wrote it. I'm like, those are his friends. Why didn't he just keep referring to them as Hananiah and Mishael? <coughs> I don't know. That's so weird. It is weird. I don't like it. Yeah, I know. It is, is weird. Is wrong to call them their Hebrew names? No. People won't understand you probably, but go for it. Yeah, I think that's great. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, too, we won't do it right now, but if you look at the meanings of those names, the Hebrew names versus the Babylonian names they're given, it's really interesting to compare, like, what their Hebrew names mean is these kind of, like, strength and hopeful names, and their Babylonian names are, like, very compromised, like, uh, overly integrated into culture, kind of, it's interesting, it's kind of to your point. I just wonder if maybe they were so young when they were given those names that it's, like, it just was their name. I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. I don't know why it stuck for them and not for Daniel. Yeah, it's a good question, but I don't know. Um, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream and is humbled again. So there's a couple instances of that again. Chapter 3, he builds this huge idol of himself. Chapter 4, he's humbled again. It's like he goes back and forth. Um, what kind of guy is he? We don't really know. Um, chapter 5, then, is um, Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. Not to be confused with Belteshazzar, which was Daniel's Babylonian name. So that can be confusing if you're reading it. Belteshazzar was Daniel's Babylonian name. Belshazzar was a king of Babylon. I think Nebuchadnezzar's son, or at least successor. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar, you know, again, we talked about, he's kind of this in and out of good and bad figure. In chapter 4, he's not good, but is humbled. And in chapter 5, his successor basically has the same kind of opportunity where God confronts him, but he doesn't change, and he dies that night. Um, so it's just, I think it's kind of contrasting, like, this guy's not good, but at least he repented. This guy's not good and wouldn't repent. And just leaves you those options to deal with as you want to. Um, which I think is part of how a lot of scripture is written, is it doesn't always wrap it up and give you the application points. It just says what happened and how God dealt with it. So you choose how you want to live. It's kind of a, what's offered uh, to you. Chapter 6 is um, Daniel and the lion's den. 
Um, so those are kind of the stories about Daniel, the things that happened around him and through his life, some of the things you would know or be familiar with. Um, then Daniel 7 through 12 are visions of Daniel. So this is when Daniel now is like, I, he sees a vision and is, and is explaining it. And there's some awesome stuff here, some confusing stuff here, um, like all the prophets. But that's what happens. So let's look at Daniel 7 for a minute. Um, specifically this one, and this will kind of be a key for the rest of it. We won't deal with all of Daniel in detail. Um, um, but Daniel 7, let's read. Um, let's just read it, because it's so good. Okay? So Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind. As he was lying on his bed, he wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. There before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, we'll stop there for now. Such a rich chapter, right? So the beginning of it sounds very, very, very much like Revelation stuff again, doesn't it? So I wonder, when John's writing down Revelation, if it's like, hey, you remember all those beasts Daniel talked about? I saw some beasts too. Do you remember what happened to those beasts Daniel talked about? They got beat. Pretty easy. Like as soon as the Ancient of Days sat down. Isn't that interesting when it's like, there's these beasts that are terrifying. They're going to eat everybody and destroy everybody. And then it's just like, then I looked, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. Who does that, what does that sound like that we just read in Ezekiel, right? He's sitting on a throne with wheels that are on fire. And a river of fire was flowing, coming from before him, thousands upon thousands. Um, then... Verse 11, it's so like unceremonious, right? Like these beasts, so much um, text is given to the beasts, like eight solid verses, six solid verses, explaining how evil they look and how scary. The Ancient of Days is clothed in white, sits down. Then I continue to watch because the boastful words of Horm was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown in the blazing fire. 
The other ones were stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In two verses, nonchalant, it's over. I, think, I don't think that's an accident. These beasts are terrifying. This guy sat down and it was over. Interesting. And then Daniel, um, well, let's skip because verses 11 through um, 14 are so good. But down in verse 15, he's like, I don't get it. And he is kind of asking God for more clarity. And even then, he's told so quickly. Um, look at um, like the middle of verse 16. It says, So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High, look at that, isn't that interesting? The saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast. So it's like he asks about the beasts, and he's just told the saints are going to reign forever. Wait, no, I asked, I want details about the beasts. Does that sound like anybody you've ever interacted with in church? Anybody you've ever felt like in church? Sometimes? I want more details about what this means. And God's like, but my holy people have dominion. Why are you worried about it? We win. That's the point. They're scary. They're big. They look bad. This guy sat down on his throne and the battle ended. What are you worried about? Isn't that interesting? Just how little time, so much time is spent by Daniel describing the evil so little time is spent by God explaining it away. I just think we should probably take a cue from that in our ministries a little bit. Of like, yes, this is crazy. Can we try to deal with the crazy and sort out what it means and who's the horn and the ten horns and the little horn and who is that and which kingdoms these represent? I don't know. We could put some names on them. None of it works out perfectly historically. The point is, there are always evil things churning out people, chewing up people, devouring nations, devouring societies. As soon as God sits on his throne and decides to reach out, it's over. So the point I think that Daniel, Daniel's vision gets to is Daniel, I would imagine, worried about these kings. He says that the first year of Belshazzar. So Daniel's been interacting with Nebuchadnezzar, who at least had moments of repentance. Now he's interacting with this new king. So what's that going to be like? And Daniel can see on the horizon, Babylon's probably coming to an end. Persia's about to take over. Is there going to be a new kingdom? Is this king going to be good? Is he going to be humble at all? It doesn't seem like it. What's going to happen? Look at all these beasts. And God's like, right, but I have my throne. Who cares what the beasts are or what they look like or how scary they look? The Ancient of Days sat down on his throne. It's over. Isn't that interesting? So then um, let's, let's look back up at verse 13. Um, so I, you see I skipped. We explained the beast. Ancient day sit down. The battle's over. Skip down to the explanation of it. Now we're back up at verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Who else is described like that? Jesus. Son of man. Yeah, Jesus. What that phrase means, by the way, Ezekiel describes himself as that a lot, the phrase son of man. What that means is like you're a human. Your dad was a man, so that means you're a man. Does that make sense? So the phrase just means you look like a human person. So... Daniel is seeing these crazy visions in this ancient of days, but then I saw a guy that looked like a human guy. What's he doing in this vision? We know, like looking back, right, with 2020 spiritual hindsight, but he sees this man-looking figure, which is why when Jesus takes that title, he's partially probably claiming Ezekiel's prophetic heritage, because again, Ezekiel called himself that a lot. He's partially just saying, I'm a human guy, and he's probably partially saying, I'm the one who stands at the foot of the throne and gets instructions. And there's kind of a little jab. So the Israelite like Bible scholars would have heard like, so what do you mean by saying you're the son of man? Because it could be harmless 
or it could be interesting, or it could be blasphemy. And depending on who you ask and at what point in Jesus' life they interpret it any of those ways, right? Mm-hmm. It's a big statement he makes. I see one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. These beasts are temporary. One after another fall as soon as God wants them to. His dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Beasts rise and fall. Jesus reigns forever. Always. And even these ones up at chapter 12. Those other beasts were stripped of their authority. They live for a period of time. And I bet if we're thinking like these beasts are like the world power, right? It's like it seems like they're kind of still around, but they're, maybe they're still not in charge. They kind of have authority. But who's giving and taking their authority in the story? Yeah, the Ancient of Days. So even when it seems like they have all this power, it's given and taken at the whim of God. But the one who has the dominion and power and authority forever over all nations is this guy who just looks like a human guy. Which, like, take that into account, too, about the kind of king Jesus is. You've got these other nations that are like a leopard and a bear, and they're eating stuff and destroying stuff, and powerful and monumental, and all these symbols of power and prestige. But then there's this guy who just looks like a guy. And he's the one in charge of all of it? That's the kind of king we've got. That's pretty good. So I love Daniel 7. So much of Daniel 7 influences Revelation. This language is all over Revelation. So again, when John's writing down Revelation, the vision he gets from God, and uses so much of that language, I think he's trying to tell his people, Jewish people and people who know their scripture, everything you've been hoping for, everything Daniel reminded you of, there's these other foreign rulers, there's scary powers, what's going to happen next? We're being persecuted, we're afraid. What did Daniel say to you? He said to you that their power is temporary, his kingdom is forever. He said to you that they look impressive, and the Son of Man did not look impressive. He said to you that they only have authority as long as God gives them authority, and that Jesus' authority is forever. So it may not look powerful enough. Trust me, he has dominion forever. And then down in the, in the explanation, remember, he's like, tell me about the beast, tell me about the kings, what's going to happen? And who does it say um, that uh, received the kingdom to possess? The kingdom that the Son of Man has dominion over forever was given to the saints. And so John takes that in Revelation and says, hey, persevere, be faithful. All you holy people, listen up. Don't give up. If you can be faithful in the hardest of times, you have dominion and authority and a kingdom from the Son of Man. Don't be afraid of a leopard. Don't be afraid of a bear. Don't be afraid of scary. you got the Son of Man. Hold on to it. That's Daniel 7 that John kind of crams into Revelation too. Does that all make sense from this chapter? So there's other stuff that follows in Daniel. Um, chapter 8, he's going to talk about Persian Greece, which end up being the next empire. So it's like, even at that time in history, Daniel can look and see Babylon's falling, Persia looks big, and Greece is like doing some stuff. You know, it's kind of like when you can look and say, I mean, in two years, the lions might be good. They might actually be. They're not yet, but they will be. I think Daniel's doing that stuff historically, you know, like Babylon's in power in a year or two. It might be Persia. And after that, it might be, you know, so he, he can see that stuff and is speaking into it prophetically. And then in chapter 9, he's going to have a little bit more. Um, what he does in chapter 9, actually, is he reads Jeremiah, it says, which is interesting. So he reads in Jeremiah where it says exile is going to last 70 years. And so Daniel's kind of adding it up and being like, so are we almost there? Come on, God, let's end this. It's almost time. And God kind of tells him, like, be patient, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And then tells him, actually, the exile that you're feeling is going to be long. If you look midway through chapter 9, I have a heading that says the 77s. 
So he's like, it's supposed to be 70 years. And God's like, yeah, it might be way more than that. Like, multiply it by a bunch, you're going to be miserable for a while. Now, we know exile kind of ends at 70 years, but doesn't. So even Daniel gets that glimpse of like, yeah, some things will be fixed, but not everything. But the Ancient of Days sits on his throne. The Son of Man has dominion over all of it. And he's giving that to his saints who persevere. So Daniel, look at all the nations and be afraid of them all you want. But you have the dominion of the kingdom at your fingertips. Not everybody will see it. You won't always feel it, but you have it. So hold on to that no matter how long it takes. That's God's encouragement to him. And then some interesting, interesting things happen um, in Daniel. There's a bunch of interesting stuff here, but let's skip ahead a little bit. Um, in chapter 12, my heading says the end times, which I think is one of the times that the Bible, yours may say something like that. It's one of the times I think the Bible is like unfairly does that. Because this, when I see that, this heading says the end times. I'm like, oh, this is telling us about the end. We need to look out for it. This, what actually happens in chapter 12 is God says, you're seeing a bunch of stuff that's going to happen. Why don't you just seal up that scroll and don't worry about all the details? That's what it says. It doesn't explain it. It just says, like, seal that up, put it away. You don't have to worry about it. Daniel, be faithful in your time. Be humble, be faithful, wait. That's what God tells him. That's the end times chapter in chapter 12. Now, here's what else is interesting. In Revelation, there's a segment when God speaks to John and says, write all this down, seal it up. Interesting. Because that's what God did to Daniel. Write all this down, seal it up, don't read it, don't, don't worry about it. I just want you to have it in your heart that I'm going to fix it. So God does the same thing to John. Write this down, seal it up, have it in your heart. And then later in Revelation, he opens it. He never says what it says. But then in Revelation kind of language, the world ends and God's on the throne. So the point that John's making, again, pulling Daniel's stuff in, is like, hey, remember when Daniel was worried about the details and how it worked out? And God said, don't worry about the details. Seal it up and be faithful. John says, hey, guys, I know it's hard. Just don't worry about the details. Be faithful. Someday we'll open it, and you know what we'll find? The Ancient of Days sat on his throne, and the battle ended. There wasn't even a battle. It's just over unceremoniously in two verses, right? Does that make sense, that combination of ideas? Okay. That's a way too quick move through Daniel. We could talk about a lot more for a long time. And if you have questions sometime, we can do that. Is that helpful? Or do you have questions right now that are like you're really stuck and want to talk through? All right. Let me give you your last blanks and then we'll be done today. Um, None of these will probably be too much of a surprise to you. Remember the historical situation? It's the first one. These books, um, Daniel and Ezekiel both, um, and I hinted at this, both can get weird end timesy stuff with them. And there are definitely future-looking sections in Daniel and Ezekiel. But if you let it be historical before it's future, futuristic, that's a healthy interpretation. And I think it's going to make more sense. So remember the historical situation. Second, connect to Revelation before you connect to newspapers. Connect to Revelation before you connect to newspapers. Again, some people look at these things and start trying to add up timelines. They're like, Daniel said 77, so seven, if that's seven years, and that's, you know, four and a half, four and a half, how many years has it been, and how long were they in power? But if you start doing that math and figuring out where the world powers are, it's never going to work out quite right, and it's just going to make you anxious. If you say, Daniel was saying, this is harder and longer than I thought it would be, but God's still in control, can we be patient? And then look at Revelation and John saying, this is harder and longer than we thought we would be, but God says be patient. That's the point. So can we figure out when God's coming back? No. Does God ever tell us? No. Does he really actually tell us how it's going to happen? No. 
He just says the Ancient of Days is going to sit on his throne and the battle will be over. Hang on till then. That's the point. So if you connect the revelation flow, instead of being like, I wonder who Gog is, then it'll make way more sense. Third, lean on the narrative portions of these books. Lean on the narrative portions. We talked about this with Jeremiah as well. If you can look at the stories Daniel tells instead of just, and Ezekiel, instead of just jumping to like, here's a prophecy against so-and-so, and you read it and like, that doesn't make sense. Or a lot of times you'll see if people refer to a prophetic book in just some pole verse. If you read it in context, it's in the middle of some random prophecy against Egypt or something. It's like, well, that doesn't have anything to do, probably, with how we tend to apply it. So just be careful where you're pulling from and look back and find a narrative to see what's happening that's making him talk about this now. And that's just always healthy prophet reading tools. Does that make sense? Um, next, is worth the time and effort to teach the history? We've talked about this a zillion times, um, and I'll keep talking about it. It's worth the time and effort to teach the history. Figure out when it's happening. Figure out where Ezekiel is and why that matters. How old is he? Why is that significant? Like, that makes a big difference in how I read Ezekiel, doesn't it? That he was 30 and what that meant. Figure that out for people. Don't just be like, man, Ezekiel's crazy. Like, no, figure out what he's talking about. Don't just think Daniel's weird. Like, no, why... Why are those beasts important? Where else is this talked about in Scripture? What could Daniel mean? Try to, try to piece that stuff together. Um, next, you can talk about interpretations. There are possible interpretations to this stuff. I hinted around them, but mostly tried to not get into it. You can talk about interpretations. I really don't think that's helpful. Maximize the application is what I would say. You can talk about interpretations. Maximize the application. So could we get into what those beasts are and what they represent? Sure, maybe. Alexander the Great had this kind of weapons, and that looks like this beast. You could deal with that stuff. I would much rather say, all of these beasts will keep coming. Daniel only described four. How many world powers have there been since Daniel's time? Dozens? So do you think he really meant to say all of them? Or do you think he was saying, there's always going to be another one that's scarier than the last. And there's always going to be an ancient of days who ends the battle when he wants to. So maximize the application. Don't get lost in the weeds of how long it's going to take because it's only ever going to be weeds. Try to find something else, and I think that will help people. And you, I really think you will find, less now than there used to be, but still, you'll find a lot of people who get really worked up about those weeds because you read it, and it's confusing. So help people understand the history, and then help people say, but, but it is confusing. But what does it mean? What does he mean? Why did Daniel say this? What did God say to Daniel to do with it? He told him, don't worry about it. Be faithful. That's what he told him. So let's do that instead of worrying about it. Let's live what God says. Does that make sense? I think when we maximize the application of these things, it really helps us not get our wheels caught up in the interpretations. Okay? All right. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for the day. We're grateful for these books of the Bible and um, all the things you have to teach us from them. I do pray that uh, you would come uh, when you see fit and how you see fit. You would win your battle and uh, bring a quick end to it. But until then, give us strength, give us perseverance, give us wisdom and discernment, patient endurance, um, so that we can be your saints who are good stewards of the kingdom until you come back uh, physically to lead it. And until then, we want to be the place uh, where heaven and earth overlap and interlock, and we want to be mediators of your covenant to people. Um, So just help us do that faithfully and well. We need your spirit to make us alive, to revive us, to give us strength, to give us a new heart today and every day. We trust you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.